for this morning. Um, I have the privilege of sharing God's word, and I'm super excited. If you know me, you know I love a good story. I was a chaplain at camp last summer. I love telling a story. I love a good story. Um, Believe it or not, Jesus Christ was actually uh, the greatest storyteller to ever live. And for his stories, uh, he would tell these things called parables. Now, a parable um, is simply an earthly illustration that points to something that's more true in the kingdom of God. For example, Jesus, he said it like this. He said, a shepherd will leave a group of 99 sheep to go after the one. In essence, Jesus is saying, if a shepherd will leave a sheep to go after a lost one, how much further will God go to go after his children when they go astray? And so a parable, uh, earthly illustration that points to a kingdom truth. And our parable this morning has implications not only for our young people, but for those of us who are also young in heart. Uh, So if you've got a Bible, uh, turn with me, meet me in Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. I'll give you a few moments to get there. Luke 18. chapter 18. And as we're turning there, just to set the scene for us, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, the Savior himself, he's at the end of his earthly ministry. Uh, He calls his boys together, his homies, his crew, his disciples. He says, fellas, I'm about to leave, and so I'm going to tell you a parable to show you what I need you to do after I'm gone. And so we pick up the story in chapter 18, Could we all stand for the reading of God's word? Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 1. It reads, And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a a widow in that town who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What was your favorite childhood TV show? This was the, this was the question I asked my parents a, a short while back. And before they were a little upset, I was joking. I was like, did they even have TV back then? And, and they're not old. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with that one at home. Uh, but when I asked them, you know, they said everything from the Flintstones, the Brady Bunch, the Facts of Life, Different Strokes, Silver Spoons, and And I ask because our favorite childhood TV show, it it brings back memories, not only from the show, but also 
the circumstances from which we watch the show in. So maybe for you, it was coming home from school and, and turning on your favorite show. Or it was your parents letting you stay up late to watch your favorite TV show. Or maybe it was waking up early on a Saturday morning when there was no school and, and turning on your favorite show. Whatever it may be, your, your favorite childhood TV show brings back memories. And believe it or not, uh, my favorite show when I was a young boy, uh, not a lot of kids were watching this, but my favorite TV show was a reality court case called Judge Judy. <laughs> and, and my aunt, she was my, my babysitter when I, was, when I was growing up, so I'd come home from school, and, and every day after school, she'd have Judge Judy on. And, and for those of you who haven't seen the show, basically, uh, Judge Judy, she's a non uh, no games, no nonsense type of judge. She's sometimes harsh. Um, she's really, really blunt. And so people would come on the show and she would tear them to shreds in the courtroom. And, and I would watch it every single day. I loved it. Um, and it was funny because right after her show would be the second judge. And this was a, a man by the name of Judge Joe Brown. And it was funny because Judge Joe Brown, he was the, he was the opposite. He was calm and relaxed and funny and cheerful. And I thought, if I were to ever go on a court show, it would be imperative for me to know just which judge I would be dealing with. Because I couldn't go to Judge Judy's courtroom the same way I would go to, to Judge Joe Brown's courtroom. There, there's something different that I would have to, to do. I would have to know which judge I was dealing with. Two judges. And friends, I bring it up because in our passage today, we also meet two judges. And it's imperative for you as a Christ follower to know just which judge you are dealing with. Jesus, he opens up the story in verse 2. He says, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Jesus plops us right into the scene. He says, here, we find ourselves in a, a first century Mediterranean society where men are at the top of the totem pole. They're at the head of society. Not only that, judges are at the top of the ranks when it comes to power. He says, we have a judge who has much authority, a tremendous amount of power, elite status, who's one of the biggest leaders throughout the entire nation. But not only does this judge have a lot of power, he also has a huge role. You see, church, the, the role of the judge was to serve and take care of the people. And how did he do it? By bringing them justice. Now, justice, why is this important? Well, it's because justice is God's heartbeat. God gets fired up over justice. It's his nature. It's his character. Not only is God just and good, but point number one, justice is God's idea. You see, God invented justice. He created it. He installed it. It's objective. He decides what's, what's right and wrong, what's just and unjust in our world. God is the author of justice. And I know because each of us come from different upbringings, backgrounds, and experiences, we all have different ideas and definitions for what justice looks like in our world. Nevertheless, since God is the author of justice, he's the one who gets to define it. Therefore, the, the biblical definition, God's definition of justice is simply this, to make things right. It's a universal flourishing. It's an interwovenness where the needs of all humans are intimately connected, where all people can have the food, 
shelter, resources, and opportunities that are necessary for human flourishing. Practically speaking, justice is where the people who have been disadvantaged, marginalized, defrauded, and manipulated can be given back what's been taken from them. You see, God's justice is perfect. God's justice is impartial. It goes beyond race, gender, political party, and socioeconomic status, but it reaches to every person because all were created in his image and likeness. Justice is God's idea. And because it's God's idea, he calls his people, his church, to love justice, to do justice, and fight for justice as well. Jesus said it himself in Matthew chapter 25, what you do for the least of these you have done for me. In essence, Jesus is saying that the mark of a true Christian, the evidence that a person truly knows God, is a life poured out to serve those who are treated unfairly or less fortunate. To be a Christian is to share your resources, to advocate, to engage with those who have been unrightfully hurt or wronged, the oppressed, the poor, the disadvantaged, the weak and the small. God says, to call yourself a follower of me is to care for the people I care about. And friends, let me tell you, doing justice isn't merely joining movements, but it's about the radical love of Christ in your heart compelling you to show that to those around you. Justice is God's heartbeat. So it's not surprising when the Bible explains that the two most important attributes of a judge are regard for justice and compassion for people. However, Jesus tells us that this judge neither feared God nor cared about people, meaning he had zero concern for the law of God or the needs of people. You see, this was an evil judge. This was a wicked judge. The judge in this city had no regard for protecting women and children or helping the poor or giving people safety and protection. He could care less about people's well-being. He's immovable when it comes to doing what's right by God or the community. Yet, he's the one with all the power. And isn't it funny when the person who has the most authority over people doesn't actually care about the people in which he has authority over? Surely we've seen this before. Joseph and Potiphar, Esther and King Xerxes, Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. Here we have another unjust judge. Though in verse 3, there's another character who pops onto the scene. It's a widow. Verse 3, Jesus says, And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to the judge and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. So this woman, this, this widow, is coming to the judge asking him to grant her justice. Church, why is this problematic? Because we just said that this judge ain't interested in giving nobody justice. And this has to be heartbreaking for this widow. Think about it like this. In this context, widows were the weakest, most vulnerable individuals in the entire community. Uh, for starters, women had to depend on their husbands or male relatives for everything, protection, support, finances, status. It all came from the husband. But when the husband died, the, the widow was dependent on the charity of her sons and other relatives. Unfortunately, this woman has no sons. She has no male relatives. She's without family, protection, or support. She's disadvantaged. She's an outsider. People look at her in the community with contempt. No husband, 
no children, no funds, no home. This must be why God commands us as the church to care for widows, because they have no home in society. It's a crucial to note, though, that when we think of a widow, we typically maybe envision like an elderly woman who, whose husband has passed. But in the first century, girls were getting married at 13 and 14, which resulted in a large amount of young widows. Thus, while the text doesn't say, this widow could very well be a teenager or in her early 20s. So here we have a young woman, alone, no male protection, no outside support, vulnerable. And that only means one thing. She can easily be taken advantage of. And this is exactly what happens. She says, give me justice. What's the injustice that has taken place? A rich and influential man has cheated her out of her inheritance money, leaving her dirt poor and out of absolutely everything. So not only has she lost her family, but now she's being oppressed. She needs to go to the judge. The Bible says she, she runs to the judge without any representation to plead her own case. You can picture the scene. It's a packed courthouse. Males are the only ones allowed in the courtroom. But due to her desperate situation, she pushes her way through the crowd. She makes her way to the judge as onlookers scowl in disbelief. Out of her pain, the, the young lady cries, Judge, can you please help me? There's a man who is hurting me. He's taking advantage of me. Grant me justice. She's lost everything, so, so you can imagine she's, she's begging. She's crying. She's pleading for her own life, saying, Judge, I, I need you. I'm desperate. The man won't leave me alone. You have the power. Will you do something? Help me. I need justice. But the text says the judge won't help. He isn't interested. The young lady who's oppressed, poor, hurting, and alone. The scripture says she keeps coming to the judge, crying out for justice, but he refuses her. He denies her. He won't listen. And church, in my own experience as a young Christian, it hurts my heart to see that in 2019, young people are still crying out for justice, though it's as if nobody's listening to them. When studies show that one in four girls and one in six boys is sexually assaulted before the age of 18, yet America has the audacity to blame the victims. When young African-American males are swallowed up by our prison systems, being imprisoned at six times the rate of other males, when in one year alone over 300 Hispanic families have been torn apart at our borders, literally parents separated from their children, when a number of school districts thrive while others lack the necessary funds, resources, or support to give their students even a chance at academic success, could it be, church, that there are still young people crying out for justice, but it's as if they're being denied and refused? What if that was your son or daughter who was oppressed, bullied, taken advantage of, and out of their, their pain, they, they build up enough courage to seek out help, but they're ignored, they're refused. How are you feeling, moms and dads? Now I'm aware that regardless of age, a number of us have experienced exactly that. At school, at work, at home. Now put yourself in the shoes of this young widow. 
verse 4 says, the widow kept coming to the, the judge, yet for a while he refused. Let's sit on that for a moment. Kept coming. That means time after time, day after day. This poor widow is coming to the judge, crying, pleading, commanding that he assist her, that he do something, anything. Yet for a while he refused. In other words, while she's suffering, he's in no rush. He's in no hurry. He's taking his sweet time. And why does he take his time? Because he doesn't care about her. The judge, we already said this, he has no concern for her justice, her rights, her safety, her well-being. He takes his time because he doesn't care. And friends, here, here's where we find a connection but a distinction. And here's where we have to be careful. If you have asked someone for help and they've either ignored or refused you, when you pray to God and he doesn't answer on your time frame, you might believe it's because he's refusing you as well. I'll say it another way. When you pray for something and it seems as if nothing is being done, it's easy to believe that it's because God is refusing you as well. When you've been praying against the unjust systems in our nation that benefit some while hindering others, but things remain the same. When you've been praying for fair treatment and opportunity in your workplace, but nothing appears to change. When you've been praying for the bullying in schools to end, but children continue to hurt. When you've been praying for the Lord to save your lost family members, but they continue in their rejection of the Lord. When you've been praying for the Christians who are persecuted worldwide, but the killings continue. It's like, Lord, I would, I would pray daily for the things in, that are evil and unjust in our world, but, but every day I look at the news, I just feel like something else is going to happen. What do you do, Missy O'Day, when your prayers seem to go unanswered? When it seems like the, the Lord is holding out on you? The Christian answer is, well, Chris, just keep praying. But even Jesus knew there would be days in the lives of his disciples where it would be easier for them to give up on prayer and faith altogether. After all, isn't, isn't this why Jesus told his disciples not to lose heart, to not lose motivation, to not become discouraged? Because there is something that will make you want to give up on prayer. And that is when it seems as if those prayers are making no difference. As if those prayers will never come to pass. What have you stopped praying for? But church, here's where we find hope. The judge took his time to give the widow justice because he doesn't care. When God seems to be taking his time to answer your prayers, he's actually working them out for the best time. When God appears to be taking his time, he's not actually taking his time, rather he's setting things in motion to take effect at the right time. You see, he's so good, and his timing is so perfect that it may not always line up with your timing. Apostle Peter, he put it like this, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. But here's some good news, church, and it brings us to point number two. When God seems silent, he's actually in 
action. 500 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew as the children of Israel waited for the Savior of the world to be born. Was God ignoring them? Was he holding out? No, he was actually working to get Jesus into the earth at the perfect time to accomplish what he needed to accomplish. Anyone who feels like God hasn't heard you, been ignoring you, forgotten about you, friend, he's not late. He's not holding out. I know it's not always easy waiting on the answer. And sometimes God's answer to your prayer is no. But when you have trouble trusting his timing or trusting his no, you can trust his character. You know that he's a good and faithful father whose ways are higher than your ways, whose thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You know that he loves you. If the sparrows don't fall to the ground outside of the father's care, how much more will he care for you? After being asked repeatedly by the widow to, to grant her justice, the judge, he, he finally gives in. Verse 5 explains, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The judge says, Even though I don't care about the Lord, even though I don't give a crap about this woman, I'm going to grant her justice, not because I want to help her, but so she'll leave me alone, so she'll get off my back. Therefore, it isn't the widow's case, but her persistence that eventually wears the judge down. She kept coming, kept pleading, wouldn't quit, refused to leave the judge alone until he gave her what was right, so much so that the judge, he can't take it. While he's not interested in justice, he is interested in getting this widow far away from him. The widow is persistent, and the judge wants her gone. This past year at, at Trinity School, uh, one of my classes, every day I would come in with uh, this, this bag of barbecue chips, and the guy next to me, I loved him, but, but he would always ask for my chips, and it would irk me. I'm like, bro, I'm going to eat it, just not right now. And he would continue to ask, Chris, come on, you've been in here for four minutes, are you going to eat them? I'm like, no, just let me eat them. But he would continue to poke, Chris, can I get the chips, every single day. And after a while, I would say, you know what, I don't even want the chips anymore, take them. Not because I wanted him to eat, but so he would get off my back, so he would leave me alone. And friends, this is exactly what's taking place in the story. The poor widow is oppressed, beaten down, bullied, alone, and the judge ends up giving her justice, not because he cares for her, but because she will not quit badgering him. But friends, this is where Jesus turns the story all the way up. This is where Jesus turns the parable on its head. He contrasts the earthly judge with the true judge. Verse 6, he says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. This judge only gave the, the widow justice because she was a burden, because he was tired of her request. But even he granted her justice when she cried out to him. This ungodly, unloving, uncaring, uncompassionate judge who, who cared nothing about her needs, even he gave her justice when she cried out to him. What makes you think that God won't bring justice when you cry out to him? 
if that judge gave the, the widow justice after her persistent pleading? How much more will a kind and loving father bring justice for his kids who pray to him day and night? How much more will the God who formed you in your mother's womb put the taste buds on your tongue, knows the number of hairs on your head, would do anything for you, loves you, died for you, provides for you? How much more will that God respond to your pleas and petitions? The God who knows every sinful and shameful part of your testimony, but is still proud to be seen with you. How much more will that God answer your prayers when you cry out to him? The earthly judge gave justice reluctantly, though your God gives it willingly. Jesus says, please remember, church, which judge you're dealing with. You're not dealing with an unjust judge who doesn't care, but with a, a God who sees you hears you, loves you, and moves mountains for you. The same God who split the Red Sea so that you could go free. The God who stood next to you when you were in the fiery furnace. The God who joined you when you were cast into the lion's den. The God who fought on your side when you faced Goliath. The God who saw you drowning in your sins, so he left heaven, came to earth as a baby in order to die on a cross, reconciling you back to himself. This is your father. This is your God. Your God doesn't ignore or refuse your prayers, pleas, and complaints. Your God doesn't get exhausted from hearing your cries. Your God doesn't watch the tears flow from your eyes and tell you to get over it. Your God doesn't get tired of reading the prayers you write to him in your journal, but rather he reminds your heart with a still, small voice that every prayer that's written has already been worked out. This is why the gospel is good news for the poor. This is why the gospel is good news for the powerless. This is why the gospel is good news for the immigrant. This is why the gospel is good news for the woman who's been assaulted. This is why the gospel is good news for the children who are bullied because the Lord fights for those who cannot fight for themselves. He's the God of the unseen. He's the God of the weak and the needy. Church, you don't pray to a judge who doesn't hear you or doesn't care for you but to a loving, compassionate Father who stopped at nothing to rescue you. Psalm 116, 2 puts it like this. David says, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my prayer for mercy, because he bends down to listen. I will pray as long as I have breath. Truly, God will, will bring justice for his people. He will make all things right. We pray to him because he hears us. Because he answers us, and he's not slow in answering either, but works everything together in his perfect timing. When it seems like things are out of control, we can trust that God knows what's best and that he will bring justice at just the right time. Here, we meet a widow who is beaten down by the unjust systems that surround her, a woman who's disadvantaged, oppressed, left to plead her own case. She yearns for justice. She longs for things to be made right. And while this, while this widow plays a significant role in this parable, she actually points to something and someone much greater. You see, this, this widow's desire for justice represents Christians who long for the kingdom of God. Christian, Christians who yearn for God to make all things right. Christians who desire for God to correct the brokenness in our world. Like the widow in the passage, 
Many of us in this room have experienced injustice. Many of us have been treated unfairly. We've gone unheard or unseen. We've been taken advantage of, whether it be in our families, our friend groups, in the workplace, or even on a systemic level. We yearn for the day when we won't have to experience these things any longer. Much like the prophet Habakkuk, we too cry out, How long, O Lord? How long will sin live on the earth? How long will those who rebel against God prosper while Christians suffer? How long do we have to wait for you to make things right? How long will we have to struggle in our finances? How long will we continue to experience broken relationships and marriages? How long will racial prejudice continue to divide our nation, even in the church? How long will cancer and sickness and anxiety and depression plague our bodies? How long, O oh Lord? But watch Jesus as he answers our questions of how long. Verse 8, he says, I tell you, God will give justice to them speedily. In other words, God, he isn't late. He won't take his time. He's right on schedule. He hasn't forgotten. He knows and he sees. He will bring justice for his people and it will be speedily. It's as if Jesus is saying, you don't have to worry about how long until all these things will be made right because your justice is assured. And this brings us to our third point. Ultimate justice is guaranteed for the Christian. You say, Chris, how can you say that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because this, this is the hope for every person who calls himself a follower of Jesus today. This is the good news for every Christ follower worldwide. That as Jesus stretched his arms out wide on the cross and carried your sin and declared that it is finished, he inaugurated a kingdom that would never be shaken, a kingdom that couldn't be overthrown, one where all things would be made right. And by Jesus dying on the cross, being buried, resurrecting on the third day, ascending to the right hand of the Father, he promises that there will be a day when he will come back to judge the living and the dead, where evil will be judged and righteousness will reign. Not only that, he will take all who believe in him to be with him for all of eternity as he creates a new heaven and a new earth. In the new kingdom, all things will be made right. All justice will be restored. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. God is the king, though right now here on earth he has rebels in his kingdom. Nevertheless, when Jesus Christ returns, he will do away with all the pain, all the sickness, all the sadness, all the injustice. And we will live in perfect peace and joy in the presence of our Heavenly Father forever. This is the hope we have. This is the anchor in times of trouble. This is God's promise. Our justice is assured. And church, I must say, while this parable addresses the topic, topic of justice, Jesus is actually trying to communicate something much deeper. You see, the greatest justice that needs to be restored is not in the streets, it's not in the White House, but rather, it's in your heart. We're seeing a generation of young people who are 
passionate about justice, ready to march and protest and fight in the streets for justice, but they're disconnected from the God and church who invented it. There are those of us in, in this room who have been hurt and treated unfairly, and we feel compelled to, to fight for justice as well. But you're disconnected from the Jesus who created justice. And while God cares about the injustice in our world, his first order of business is making you right with himself. The Bible says that Jesus was oppressed, marginalized, disadvantaged, taken advantage of, so that you wouldn't have to be in the end. He gave his body, shed his own blood, carried a cross, not because of any sins he committed, but because of the sins you committed to pay for your wrongdoings. Truly, the greatest injustice was each of us putting Jesus on a cross to pay for sins he didn't commit. Out of his love, he died and rose again, defeating sin, hell, and the grave. And if you believe, not only are your sins forgiven, but you are made right with God the Father. When you repent and put your faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, you too become a child of God. You too will have assurance of justice. Give your life to Jesus Christ. He's calling you. He loves you. He's ready to receive you as his child. Come to Jesus. And as I close, when Jesus shared this parable with his disciples, it was in the middle of a discourse concerning heaven and the kingdom of God. In verse 1, Jesus explains why he told them this parable so that they would always pray and not lose heart, that they would never give up. You see, Jesus knew that in your life, there would be situations, trials, troubles, and pains that would tempt you to give up on prayer and faith altogether. He knew there would be seasons in this period of waiting for his return, waiting for the fullness of the kingdom to be revealed, where you would question, God, do you even see me? God, do you, do you even hear me? Is all of this even worth it? He knew. But because God wants each and every single one of us to finish the race, he gave us a tool to carry us to the finish line. And that tool is persistent prayer. Prayer that doesn't stop when, when things get tough. Prayer that continues even when nothing appears to be changing. Jesus says, if you stay in constant communication with your Father, if you keep an ongoing conversation with your God, if you continue to lay everything down at your Father's feet, there isn't a trial, a sickness, or a battle on earth that can separate you from his love. He's the one who's all-powerful. He has the ultimate authority. Remember who's on the throne. God has the final answer. Keep talking to him. Truly, and this brings us to our last point, persistent prayer is a Christian's greatest weapon. In the face of injustice, pray. In the middle of uncertainty, pray. When friends, family, members, and coworkers make you want to scream, pray. In every situation, talk to Jesus. He will carry you to the finish line. We persist in prayer, not because we have to badger or wear down the judge like the widow, but because our judge is a good and gracious dad who wants to hear from us, a dad who loves us, 
God does hear you. God does answer you. And when your timing doesn't match his, you can trust in his goodness. You can trust that he's working all things together for good. After all, your justice is assured. You know how the story ends. But in the meantime, let's pray, let's love people, and let's party. All right, let's pray. (laughs) 